Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrel pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. That's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. If you made a Venn diagram of Jeopardy fans and baseball fans, Alex, you and I would fit right smack in the middle of that Venn diagram, would we not? We absolutely would. I'm the type of person who, when I still had cable, I DVR'd Jeopardy episodes and watched them all over the weekend because I would usually not be in the apartment at 7 p.m. when it would run and I wouldn't want to miss anything. And you're the type of person that'll stay up till 2 a.m. to watch an A's extra innings baseball game on a Tuesday in June. So we've got all the bases covered. We really, honestly, if you rolled the two of us into one, I think we could sweep Jeopardy easily. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> There's currently a Jeopardy champion who's been going for like months and is much smarter than us. And uh, and a Jeopardy champion who, James Holtower, who would like to, who once had dreams about being in an MLB front office, still harbors dreams about being a general manager someday. I know that that whole like fallout from that is is still kind of weird to me. He he was on effectively wild talking about that. Did you listen to that? I did not listen to that. It was interesting. And then I saw like a week after I listened to that interview, some notification from Yahoo Sports app being like Jeopardy champion gets offer from front office that said they would be lucky to have him. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Is this yeah, how this it takes to? Get, is this what it takes <laughs> to get a job in these parts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah the the like first. The first like story that came out about it was just that like this Jeopardy champ loves baseball and like always wanted to work for an MLB team. And I'm like, cool, extremely relatable. And now you learn that he's like a, he's a professional gambler who, uh, who really wanted to be a major league GM and is totally like a sabermetrics analytics nerd. And I'm like, I, I feel like maybe we wouldn't get along. If you're cavorting around with major league GMs, I think I, we would be the opposite of friends. I know. It's gone from like, oh, it's a likable thing about him that he likes baseball. I like baseball to like, oh, would you be one of the people in baseball that I don't like? <laughs> this this guy would definitely manipulate service time. Let's be real. <laughs> all right. Well, all of this is a long way of saying that when Cut4 sent out a notification from the MLB at Bad App asking us to play Jeopardy in their app, essentially, it excited us very much although neither of us actually played the game when the notification came and that's what we're <laughs> going to do now on the podcast <laughs> yes thank you to uh to chris landers for compiling this he put he pulled together uh nine of the best baseball themed questions from jeopardy over the years uh we've got a bunch of different categories here and we just wanted to go through these and show uh show how mu- how little we actually know about baseball because some of these are not easy we're obsessed with proving to people that we don't actually know that much about the sport that we do a podcast about. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Setting the expectations low for ourselves. All right, we're going to see how well we do. And if you're listening at home, hopefully you can play along and do potentially better than us. But before we do that, I'm Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Paisley. And this is Tipping Pitches, the uninformed baseball podcast. All right, Alex. So like we said, 
We're very interested in Jeopardy. We're very interested in baseball. And we're going to get to that in one second. Later in this episode, though, we're going to have uh, a really great guest who was awesome to talk to, Brittany De La Creta. Um, she's been uh, a longtime really great Twitter follow of ours. She uh, has shared a lot of the stories that we've eventually gone on to talk about on this podcast and brought them to our attention. And she's a, a sports columnist at Long Reads. She's freelanced for a ton of other places like The Times, The Atlantic, The Ringer. Um, I'm familiar with that website. So we had a great conversation with her. We were really lucky that she came on and was a guest. But before we get into our conversation with her, we're just going to go over a couple quick things. Uh, one of those being Jeopardy. So let's get into it. I am ready. I don't know if I'm ready to have the correct answers to these questions, but I am ready to at least try in a private but eventually public forum. (laughs) All right. This first category is baseball geography. The question is, after Alaska, it is the largest state in area without a major league team. Wow. Okay. So this requires me to actually know all 50 states. Off to a good start. The largest, I'm, I'm, the largest gonna, state in area to not have a major league team. Okay. I'm going to enjoy the thinking out loud process of us trying to work through each of these answers that are ultimately going to be very obvious. Jeopardy moves incredibly fast and we're going to take like we three minutes past. on each question. <laughs> the time has already been up. James Holtzauer is already like, I'd like to bet $17,000 on this question. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with Maine. No. Montana. Montana. Uh, I'll, I'll go with uh, Nebraska. Nebraska? Okay, interesting choice. <laughs> wow, what is Montana? Hell yeah, let's do it. What's next? Category is Let's Go Dodgers. In 1958, the Dodgers came to LA from this Brooklyn ballpark. That I don't had know been if you there. know this, but so did I in 2018. <laughs> so 50 <laughs> years apart, I'm basically the Dodgers. Anyway. It had, had been their home for four decades. Wait, can you say the question again? I interrupted you. I'm sorry. <laughs> they want to know what the the Dodgers' home was. Yeah, well, uh, the the ballpark that they moved oh, from uh, in Abbots Brooklyn. Ebbets Field. Yes. The category. The category is I don't want to cramp. This two word animal term for a painful leg cramp traces back to 19th century baseball slang. Uh, uh, Charlie horse. Charlie horse. Yeah. What is a Charlie a- horse? Yeah. Damn, Alex, we're killing it. We're also, we're not answering in, uh, in Jeopardy style, I don't believe. We're just like, Montana, a Charlie uh, horse. You're right. Sorry. I, I'm not looking so, Alex Trebek in the eye, and he's not shaming me into a- answering the correct <laughs> way. So, hold on. Let me retroactively go back. What is Montana? What is Ebbets Field? What is a Charlie horse? All right. There next? we go. All right. Three for three. Uh, the category is oxymorons. Jacksonville's minor league baseball team is named this. A classic shellfish oxymoron. A shellfish oxymoron. Ah, yes. Uh, what is a jumbo shrimp? What are the jumbo shrimp? Hell yeah, baby. All right. The category is sports. So, That's, uh, so <laughs> okay. big, big tent over here. <laughs> uh, either of two current pro baseball team names that don't end in S. Oh. The, what are the Red Sox? Red Sox. Or the White Sox. Yeah. That feels like cheating. But it does feel like I cheating. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, the category is baseball terms. Hall of Famer Willie Stargell called it a butterfly with hiccups. 
I feel like this is a knuckleball. I, I agree with you. What is a knuckleball? What is a knuckleball? Yep. Man, we are killing it. A butterfly with hiccups. Willie Stargell, come on tipping pitches. <laughs> I, that's beautiful writing. It, it really is. <laughs> is Willie Stargell um, alive? If he's not, I'm going to feel bad. <laughs> um, almost definitely not. Uh, category <laughs> is baseball nicknames. <laughs> Uh, if this alliterative nickname were literally true, Babe Ruth would have been would have ruled part of northern Pakistan. The Sultan of Swat. Wow, the guy who came up with that question was so proud of himself. That's it's a good question. <laughs> Side note: Let's do a little tangent here. Sultan of Swat is the best nickname, yeah, in sports ever. Imagine being the guy who well actually Babe Ruth. Yep. He's like, um, you're not actually the Sultan of SWAT. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next category. The my Colossus m- of Clout. The Sultan of SWAT. <laughs> Sorry. The great Bambino. I love this say a lot. Great movie. The next category is my main man. Main spelled like the state. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That was a... Uh... Time is a flat circle. Yeah, you're, you're very prescient. Um, a huge baseball fan, this author built a ballpark in Bangor that's been dubbed the Field of Screams. Oh, um, it's it's the guy, who, who is Stephen King? There, who is Stephen King? I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't, uh, wasn't going to get that. I don't know any of these things. I don't know why I knew that he was from Maine, but I did know that he was from Maine. He also strikes me as a extremely from Maine kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever been to Maine? I've never been to Maine. It's like anyone there could be thinking of like serial killer novels, pretty much. <laughs> like anyone you pass on the road, you're just like, you could have written it. <laughs> you know, they, don't, they don't have a lot to do up there. Yeah, that's true. Except write serial killer novels. And, or do outdoorsy stuff. And fish. I love Maine. Uh, Shout out to the people of Maine. If we have any listeners in Maine. Please write us tippingpitchespod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear <laughs> more about your lives. Uh, last category, baseball movie haikus. Here we go. This feels like our niche right here. If we're being fair, I, every single question I've gotten right. So they're all our niche. There you go. Jimmy wants a pro. Alas, war calls men away. Nine gals beats no gals. This feels like a, this feels like a league of their own. What is a what's a league of their own? <laughs> this feels like uh, what is a league of their own, huh? <laughs> there we go. What is a league of their own? Nine gals beats no gals. Which honestly, if we're being honest, that's always true. Alex, we did it. We proved to the listeners of Tipping Pitches that I guess we kind of proved it. Although we could have looked up the questions ahead of time, but we didn't do that. We're honest. We're honest, folks. Yeah, Alex Trebek let. Tipping pitches come on Jeopardy. (laughs) (laughs) Or Alex Trebek come on tipping pitches. Yeah, either one. I would be very happy with either one of those outcomes. Okay, we've had our fun. Let's move on. Are you ready? Yes. It was kind of a slow week in the baseball world, or maybe I just wasn't paying attention. Um, But we're we're kind of in the dregs of mid-May at this point. Uh, teams are starting to solidify their lineups. But one thing that did break through actually came from the minor leagues, at least for me. One thing that did break through actually came from the minor leagues. 
Um, and it was Twins top prospect Royce Lewis, who is a whole lot of fun and is very good. He doubled off the wall in center field, and as he came into second base, he, for reasons unknown to me, I don't know, maybe you can explain to me why he did this, but he like did five push-ups. Um, I, I didn't really read about why he did that. I don't know if it was like he was mad at himself for something, but to I, me, I, I read think- it as he was like mad at himself for not getting the ball over the fence. Yeah, I think he was trying to indicate to his teammates that he needs to hit the weight room. Yeah. I think that was, yeah. Because the ball hit right off the top of the fence. And if he had, I guess in theory, hit the weight room a little harder this offseason, it would have gone over the fence. Um, But suffice to say that the both the team and the announcers in the game, the opposing team and the announcers in the game were not fans of this move. Um, And afterwards... Uh, his next time up, they the opposing pitcher threw behind him. I don't, I don't know if he was trying to intentionally hit him. It certainly seemed that way. But the umpire immediately ejected the pitcher, which I thought was really good. That uh, That's something I want to talk about. But before we get into that, I just wanted to read this quote from the announcer after the pitcher threw behind Royce Lewis in his next at bat. He said, you knew that was coming after Lewis did push-ups at second base. It was really a hot dog performance. Alex, is doing push-ups to make fun of yourself for your teammates a hot dog performance? It's absolutely a hot dog performance. (laughs) We will accept no self-deprecating humor here. Certainly you and I don't traffic in any sort of self-deprecating humor ever. And frankly, I don't want to see that sort of thing on my TV screen. Uh, Roll into second base and uh and keep your head down and frankly you should actually uh you should look really angry uh you should look incredibly angry that you doubled no happiness or anything like that maybe you should have apologized to the pitcher do you think you should have apologized to the pitcher yeah you really should have what's funny about this is like looking at the two pendulums that you're allowed to like swing between like you can't be um too excited about hitting a double. Like definitely do not get super hyped up about hitting a double. But also don't get too um essentially down on yourself about hitting a double either to the point where it's comically funny. Uh because that's also not allowed either. So really just blank face. No no emotion here. Yes. Be the baseball playing robot that announcers and old fans everywhere want you to be, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um I I wasn't watching the game and I've only seen like the the actual like video highlights of what happened like the double then the throwing behind and then the pitcher getting ejected and then the opposing team's manager getting ejected also after he came out to argue with the ejection but to me it reads like the umpire in the situation took immediate action and as soon as any as soon as any repercussions were enforced by the opposing team's pitcher um, who I don't know his name and I don't really care because it was a stupid thing for him to do. He just ejected him immediately. And I thought it was actually kind of one of the highlights of watching this video was seeing how quickly the umpire ejected the opposing pitcher and how when the manager came out to argue about it. And I mean, I'm not the world's best lip reader, but I can imagine that the manager was trying to say like, we were just trying to send a message. We didn't even hit him. We threw behind him, blah, 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 blah. Like, all those same trite baseball arguments that we talk about frequently, the the home plate umpire who made the ejection was just like not having any of it. If you watch the video, and we'll put the video in the description, but if you watch the video, the umpire is just like kind of shaking his head, 
walking away from the situation being like, I ejected him. I stand by it. He deserved it. And I was like, damn, an umpire making me feel sympathy. Who am I? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was handled with a lot of great because we see a lot of umpires being all too willing to engage with players or managers and get right back in their faces. And oftentimes I, I think, I mean, understandably, I think being an umpire is a really hard job and you are constantly taking shit from all sides, from players, from managers, from fans. And I'm sure it can be hard to contain your emotions when someone is screaming in your face about how wrong you are. Um, but this umpire handled it really well. And I think that, um, I don't, did a really good job of de-escalating the situation that I think a lot of other umpires could take a cue from. Definitely. I think largely my frustration with umpires, and I didn't even mean for this to get into like a big umpire conversation and debate or anything, but most of the time my frustration with umpires is not being able to own up to the mistakes that they've made. Um, or even like not being able to face the decisions that they just made. Like if an umpire makes a bad call, he essentially leads a player into arguing with him about it frequently. Um, you know, like there's been countless highlights where like someone strikes out and they disagree with the call and the umpire like takes his mask off as the dude's walking back to the dugout and is like chirping at him. And I'm just like, it doesn't need to be that way. Um, and the umpire in this situation, I thought handled it really well. Um, I guess back to the announcer real quick before we move on to this topic and get into our conversation with Brittany. Um, it's been one of the most frustrating things this season for me is hearing clips of announcers continuously reinforcing the kind of like outdated and toxic arguments that we talk about a lot on this show. I don't think like every announcer should be waving the hammer and sickle like you and I necessarily, but I do think that there should be some level of directive from organizations, directive from the league where it's like, we should all sort of be on the same page about things like let the kids play. I think largely my frustration with that initiative and the inconsistent with, with that initiative and the way that it's implemented online and during commercials and stuff is that it's just incredibly inconsistent with the way that it trickles down to other positions of power within the organizations and within the within the commissioner's office. Ostensibly, if you're an announcer, and I get being an announcer and defending your home team club, but I think to some extent, like you should recognize when something that your player did is wrong. And even more so when that something that is wrong is kind of like undermining the largest takeaway, the largest campaign that the league is trying to revolutionize right now, that being let the kids play. The announcer in this situation basically was just like, well, this is what happens if you're going to be a jackass like Royce Lewis was. And he didn't say it in that crude of phrasing, but that was his point. And I don't know. To me, it's like the attitude around let the kids play is never really going to change if at the lower levels that are building up towards the majors, we're still like allowing dudes to have microphones in front of their faces, undermining your point. 
Yeah. I mean, it's like we talked about with regards to Tim Anderson. It's like announcers and media and fans, obviously, all play as much of a role, if not a bigger role, um, than players do in changing this culture. Because even if all the players uh, want some sort of culture shift, if all the eyes on you are saying, don't do this, act this way, don't do this, like at a certain point, you're going to, you're going to cave to the pressure. Um, but when you have announcers who are out there essentially backing you up, um, or fans or, or media members who are being like, this is okay. Why do we give a shit about this? Then you might feel more inclined to go out and actually be yourself and be exuberant and, and show that excitement. So. I, again, I mean, it's not like this is necessarily different from anything else that we've talked about before, but it's just another, it's definitely indicative, like you were saying, of how this starts really at the lowest levels of professional baseball. And so it's like, it's no surprise that a lot of players kind of keep their heads down by the time that they get to the major leagues. Yeah. And I think it's even more stark in this instance because it is a top prospect who's a really exciting player, you know? Like Royce Lewis is a middle infielder with speed and pop and really great bat speed. And if we're stamping out the fun parts of him now, by the time he gets to the show, like he he will have been conditioned to be not as fun as Francisco Lindor. You know what I mean? And and we need more people like we need more prospects like Royce Lewis allowed to act how they think is most closely aligned with their personality. And this is a specific and stark instance of baseball trying to stamp that out. I think that, and the last thing I want to say before we move on off this, but I think it's, it's kind of interesting comparing like baseball to basketball in this regard, because basketball players are essentially coming straight out of college. Um, A lot of them are still not kids, but they're 20, 21 when they make it into the league or something like that. And they haven't gone through those like three, four, five years of playing for peanuts and zero fans and being berated by like different managers or anything like that. Like, and I feel like this is something that Fernando Perez talked to us about a little bit too, is like kind of those culture clashes, um, at the, like at the lowest rungs of the minor leagues. And when you face that like year after year after year, it definitely makes sense that like you'd kind of just get that chipped away. Yeah. I mean, and also something that he said was that a lot of guys are, from the moment they walk into a minor league clubhouse, they're given a reputation that they have to work years and years to undo. And yeah. in a lot of cases, they don't want to undo that reputation. Like in, in Fernando's instance, it was, he was an Ivy league bonus baby. And like his, his bonus check was like nothing crazy, but it was more than a lot of guys in the minors. And he said that he had a lot of combative interactions with coaches and other players trying to prove that he wasn't an Ivy League bonus baby. And I think that's just harmful and toxic in a lot of ways, obviously. Chief among them being that, like, Fernando's a really interesting and smart guy who likes writing and does poetry and has interests outside of baseball. And, like, if he's working for three consecutive years in the minors to prove to people that he doesn't care more about writing than baseball, then, like, how does he even have the time to become a better baseball player? How does he have the time to grow as a person? Like, it's just... I know we're like taking this one Royce Lewis thing and like 
blowing it up to like huge proportions, but that's kind of what we do here. I just think like a lot of those same factors contribute to essentially what we complain about on a day-to-day basis at the major league level. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't have much more to add. All right. uh, Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to, uh, we're going to have a good conversation with Brittany De La Creta. Okay, Bobby. So we have a very special guest this week. Uh, one that's probably long overdue at this point. Uh, we have <laughs> on the wonderful Brittany De La Creta. Um, she is a freelance writer. She's a sports columnist for long reads. She has something new out almost every day. It feels like I cannot keep up with all the wonderful stories that she writes, Um, but we're very excited. My pocket app is full of her stories, (laughs) ready to read. (laughs) Uh, Brittany, thanks for coming on. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm good. Although if my stories are in your pocket app, that means you're not actually reading them. No, that I read my stories and I archive them and save them so that at the end of the year, I can go back and see all the stories that I read for those like nifty little, here are the 10 best stories that I read, show offy things that people do on Twitter. Oh, that's smart. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm reading the stories. Mm-hmm. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> They're long. It's okay. they're long and they're worth it um can you do you want to just kind of introduce yourself to um the listeners tell us a bit about yourself about your background and the and the sorts of things that you write about sure uh as you said i'm a freelance sports writer i often say that my work's at at the intersection of sports and gender So that can look a lot of different ways. Sometimes I'm literally writing about female athletes, which I'm getting to do more and more lately, which is very cool. And sometimes I'm writing more about uh, culture and sports culture in particular and how it is or is not friendly to women. Incredibly necessary work. Vastly vastly undercovered, I think. Um, And... Yeah, like you were saying, you do a lot of really um, wonderful profiles, which we definitely want to get into. I know I have a a couple that I wanted to specifically ask you about. Um, But then just before we hopped on here, you tweeted something out that completely just threw my show notes up in the air. You've you've taken the the baseball emoji out of your Twitter name. What what does this mean for you? Are you backstabbing baseball? (laughs) Well, well, baseball has never been that nice to me. (laughs) (laughs) Very fair. I have followed it a little bit less this season, and it's been kind of conscious. It's been a little bit of an intentional shift towards women's basketball and WNBA coverage, and that's actually because of the way I feel like women are excluded from baseball and baseball fandom. And I'm a Red Sox fan, and I'm having a really hard time with the White House visit stuff that happened. And it's just really hard for me to get excited about a league and a sport that feels like it doesn't really want me there. Uh, And obviously, aside from being actual women playing the sport in the WNBA, the league itself, 
also does a lot of stuff uh, to support social causes and their athletes and fans. So yeah, it's actually been kind of intentional. That's really interesting, like the intentionality behind that. I'm curious, like how much of your reporting sort of lines up, like when you're looking for stories, like how much of your reporting sort of lines up with like what you happen to be more interested at the time, like as a fan? Yeah, it definitely does because wherever your attention is, wherever I'm paying attention, I'm going to be seeing stories. So that definitely impacts it. But I also think the other thing that's really hard is there's plenty of baseball stories that I could be writing, even general baseball stories. By the way, I really still, even though he got DFA'd, like I really want to write about Hanley Ramirez and nobody will (laughs) let me write about Hanley Ramirez and I love Hanley. But also there's so many women and girls baseball stories and they're like impossible to place if you have written one for a publication, even a sports publication. They don't want another one for like two years. It's like wow. too much women's baseball content. So um, I actually have a profile of Veronica Alvarez in this month's issue of Bitch Magazine. And um, she played on the U.S. women's national baseball team for years. She was their catcher. Uh, before switching. She was a coach this past um, Women's Baseball World Cup. She's the first female coach invited to spring training for the Oakland Athletics this year. So that's really cool. And I do have a story um, running this summer about girls baseball. And there's so much more I could be writing if people would let me. Yeah. Uh, Something that I'm curious about with like people who cover a beat, like as you described it, the intersection of sports and gender is such a wide net to cast. So I'm curious on like a, not a day-to-day necessarily, because you're not necessarily working on a new story every day. Although, although like Alex said, sometimes it might feel that way. And I'm sure it feels that way to you sometimes, but maybe on like a week to week or a month to month basis, how much are you, you know, consciously choosing how specific you want a story to be versus how much like national appeal it might have? Um, Because I know you do a lot of work that I find really very like practical and contextual. Like, for example, your your piece about uh, women trying to find umpire uniforms is something that kind of checks both of those boxes to me. It's like very practical and on one level, like talking to real people and, you know, a level that's happened or a problem that's happening on a small level, but also appeals nationwide. Like, how do you strike that balance? Well, I write for a lot of national publications, so most of my stories have to have some kind of national appeal. That story is actually a really good example of being on a beat and being on a beat giving you a story. Mm-hmm. I Last year, I think it was, wrote several stories about female uh, umpires and officials. I had one for Bleacher Report about um, NBA officials. I had a story for Bitch Media about the pipeline problem for uh, women umps in professional baseball. Um, And through that reporting, I ended up coming across these other stories. You know, one was like, I don't remember the year, the 10 year anniversary, maybe of the first and um, only all female umpired spring, spring training game. I came across that talking to these women umpires and the umpire equipment was something that came up while I was reporting 
you know, those other stories as well of just, um, I met Isla Valcarcel who drives to both umpire academies in Florida each year if they have female students and literally helps them remold their equipment and teaches them how to do it themselves. And she's met, you know, some of the women who are umping in the minors right now in hotel rooms in Florida. She's driven there to help them either hem their pants or, you know, um, alter their uniform or equipment. And it was such an interesting and overlooked piece, I thought. Yeah. Um, but it came from being on the beat and from talking to these women and reporting these other stories. When things don't don't come so easily as being on the beat, like, I mean, easily is the wrong word in this context, but when things don't come as directly, I guess would be a better word as from being on the beat, where are you finding some of these stories? Is it just like talking to people who are not necessarily on the beat, just like scrubbing Twitter, just like reading as much as possible? Like, what is your methodology there? All of that, I think. And the longer that I do this, you know, I switched in my career. I didn't break in as a features writer. I don't think anybody can. I think you have to establish yourself to the point where you're trusted with these really big swings, these really big stories. And I had to get used to the way you have to think to plan to be a feature writer that I'm always thinking six, eight months out, a year out. I'm filling out my calendar sometimes for stories that are going to, you know, be in January or that I even have to pitch in January. So thinking really long term and far ahead, which is very different than thinking like reactionary um, kind of stuff with shorter timelines. Mm -hmm. So some of my ideas come the year before. And I, if they're not, you know, pegged to something super current, I'll sit on them until they're relevant again, or I'll sit on them for a year until I have more time to report it out so that I'm not rushing. The other way that my story ideas come to me more frequently is that people are giving me tips. I am establishing myself in this beat and people know that this is what I do. And so I have people who will reach out to me with uh, stories as well. So that definitely helps. You, uh, we talk a bit about the, the writing that you've done with regards to like umpires or, um, or, or referees, uh, women umpires, women referees. Um, and you've written about, uh, like women in the broadcast booth as well, right? You wrote for the ringer last fall, um, about Great Andrea website. Kramer. <laughs> Sorry, that's and, in my contract. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and Hannah Storm. Um, and it's interesting because these seem, these sometimes seem like the, the sorts of stories that get pushed to the side in the conversation with regards to like making sports more inclusive. It's really easy to say, um, that there should be co-ed baseball teams. Um, but you don't hear that as much with regards to, um, umpiring or broadcasters or anything like that. And it, in a sense, it feels like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy where young girls don't see themselves represented in these fears and then they don't see it as an opportunity that's worth pursuing. Um, do you kind of in navigating the space and having these conversations, do you see the, the needle moving at all? And what are the, I guess the, the benefits and the limitations, I guess, of all these like kind of special and structured uh, instructor like trial run things that you see going around you know it's interesting about those stories that I don't think they're quite sports adjacent but they're adjacent to like what's happening on the field right and the reason 
I started pitching so many of those. One of my first big stories was about Jessica Mendoza is because as a newer writer trying to break in to sports writing, I felt like I had a better chance at getting access to people who are on the periphery than to people who are actually on the, the field or on the court. And in doing so, kind of found a niche and kind of found this area that was a little bit overlooked. And also to speak to my insecurities, because um, there's still not a ton of women doing sports writing. There's way more than there were. And there's so many women doing great work. But when I decided I wanted to try to start sports writing, it was partially because I didn't see my voice reflected anywhere in what I was reading or the kind of stories that I wanted to write. But because of that, I actually felt self-conscious and like I couldn't write stories that centered on like in-game action. I felt really worried that like I would be seen as a fraud or something. Mm -hmm. So I actually gravitated towards these more like cultural and like sports adjacent or, you know, um, game adjacent stories. And that's how I stumbled into those. I do think that we see the needle moving. That play-by-play story is a really good example of when I set out to write it, I ended up being really surprised by the number of women working in play-by-play that I discovered. Every time I talked to somebody, they gave me another name and they gave me another name. And I ended up having like 30 or 40 names by the time I was done reporting. And obviously I could never have talked to that many people for a single story. And I felt awful like leaving people out. But that made me feel really good to see how many names and how easy it ended up being to find people for that story, particularly in minor league baseball, where there's like four, maybe women doing play-by-play broadcasting in the minor leagues uh, this season, which is almost unheard of. Um, The Red Sox single-A affiliate had an all-woman booth for the first time this season. I think an all-woman booth for the first time in professional baseball, which don't don't cite me on that, but... um, We're fact-adjacent. Either way, I feel like we're starting to see these strides i think the next place i would like to see things change is in post-game panels like analysis of in-game if i have to see like 17 retired athletes sitting on a panel yeah again like those are horrible i think and and those are really hard for me to watch still but i think in other areas we really are seeing progress well it's and it's interesting that you you say that when you started asking around, like you kept getting more and more names, which I think just kind of proves that it's like a lot of times, like this is just not something that people are, are looking for. Right. I mean, as you, this, the headline to the story, right. Is where are all the women in play by play broadcasting? And it's like, well, they're there. If you, if you want to actually go out and take the time to um, find them. But at the same time, no one ever has these conversations and they're rarely ever um, centered in any regard, which makes it so easy to just kind of, um, I don't know, let them get pushed off to the side. Yeah. It's the same thing. Like where are all the women in sports writing? We're here. Where are all the people of color in sports writing? There are plenty. If, (laughs) If people actually want to look for diverse voices they're there, but it's easy to go with the status quo. It's lazy to go with, you know, the first five people you think of. But what's funny is like the first five people I think of in sports writing or whatever else are not necessarily white men. And I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned as a journalist 
and this is the case for this story, right? One of the biggest tips for diversifying sources is to ask your sources who else you should talk to because the people who are doing the work or the people who have some sort of marginalized identity tend to know the other people in their field that do too. And so all you have to do is ask and, you know, people have that information if you seek it out. Yeah. I'm curious, like how, when you first started getting into this field and kind of getting into this world, and like you said, a lot of people were eager to give you other names of people to talk to. Were people sort of tentative when you were talking to them about stories like this? Like in your experience reporting out these stories, like for example, the all women broadcast booth, things like that, had your sources and the people that are featured in these stories, like had they, had they been asked these questions before, I guess is, is where is something I'd be curious about because I feel like I haven't read a ton of these stories. I haven't read enough of these stories. And I I can imagine that for you and for, for the people that you talk to, it's sort of hard to put all of this into the extremely cynical context of the world of baseball. Yes. Some of them may have been asked things like this before. And it's a hard line to walk because you get like, you know, Jessica Mendoza has talked about, like she's sick of being asked what it's like to be a woman in the broadcast booth. And so it's a really, really fine line to be able to walk as a reporter um, to say, I want to talk about the reality of what you're doing. And I also don't want to box you in and limit you to being your gender. And I think that most of the stories that actually get commissioned about women in sports, like they're the the first woman to do this. And then we never hear about the next 10. So you have to be exceptional or the first for editors to even like deem your story worth being told. And, um, you know, when I wrote about, um, Jessica Mendoza, I, it was for teen Vogue and I opened the piece with her discussing the mechanics of Drew Pomerantz's like pitch pitches. And, um, I thought they were going to cut it because it's not a baseball audience, but I wanted to try, I wanted to lead, not with, you know, we, when she's telling me this, this story, she's getting her hair and makeup done in a hotel room. And I very easily could have set the scene. And like, I didn't want to, I wanted to lead with this woman showing her expertise and talking about pitch mechanics and they kept it in. And I'm so proud of that. And I actually had to interview Jessica for another story a few months later. And she actually said to me, by the way, I never got to, to talk to you after that story ran, but thank you for opening with that quote. I noticed that. And like, I really appreciate it because so often I, you know, the focus is not on my baseball knowledge. So it's a really fine line to walk there because the reality is she still is the first woman to be doing the job she's doing. And she is still going to come up against, you know, barriers and sexism and the people on Twitter who think she should get out of the booth. Um, and you kind of can't separate her from that as much as, you know, she deserves to be separated from it. Which is an incredible amount of pressure to place on someone. I mean, not only, not only are you kind of boxing her in and maybe defining by her gender or anything like that, but the, the bar is so much higher because all eyes are on her 100% of the time, just waiting for looking for a reason to be like, well, see, this is, this is why women don't belong in the broadcast booth or anything like that. And that's, I can't even imagine having to 
shoulder that that sort of thing and still kind of carry yourself with the poise and the and the knowledge that she does i mean she i think handles herself she's absolutely the best part of that sunday night baseball booth in my opinion um and i don't know i mean i my hat is certainly uh, tipped to her for all that she does yeah i'll tell you when i was writing that story um my dad, who is who taught me the game, I used to watch baseball with him, you know, at night, and he would always say whatever the broadcasters were going to say before the broadcasters did, and <laughs> that was how I grew up watching the game. And in recent years, he's watched it less. And and when I was um, reporting that story, he turned on the Sunday night broadcast that night because he knew, you know, that I was there. And my dad is sexist. And I don't think he believes he is, but he absolutely is. He's, you know, he would make the well-meaning jokey sexist comments. And when he watched that broadcast, I got a text from him and he was like, she's really good. She knows what she's talking about. (laughs) Yes. That's her job. She's on ESPN. Of course she does. (laughs) And the fact that that's even like, a thing that she's up against, but also like in a little way, it felt like um, breaking through even my dad's kind of like built in sexism. I was like, Oh, maybe we're turning a corner somewhere. (laughs) Like (laughs) we can have female baseball broadcasters now. It's okay. Changing dad's minds just (laughs) one at a time. (laughs) One well-reported feature story at a time. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Something that you said really strikes me in, I'm frequently reminded of when I see, you know, analysts like Harold Reynolds, like coming out and saying stuff that is just sort of like blasphemous baseball analyzing. Um, and, and that's like the idea that you have to have been a former player, even to put your hat in the ring and how exclusionary that idea is and how there's not necessarily a correlation with how good you are on TV and how good you are in a broadcast booth with even whether you were a player or how good you were as a player, like, you know, for example, we all love like the, the robotism of a rod on TV, but like, I don't find him very good in the broadcast booth. And I think it's just a shame how, like how much that trickles down from, you know, front office field level all the way into the booth in your reporting. And I guess like in your thinking about these things as you're reporting, like, have you seen any kind of like, interesting ways to sort of combat that idea that you had to have played to have been even involved in the peripheries of the game? Well, we could name like a lot of broadcasters that never played. There's school for broadcasting. There's actual school to learn how to be a broadcaster. You can be taught this skill. And some of the broadcasters played, you know, in up to like high school level or little league or whatever. And they count that as experience. And there's plenty of girls that have played baseball at that level too. And someone like Jess Mendoza obviously has game experience. She's like an Olympic medalist and has all yeah. kinds of ridiculous records at Stanford and, you know, is one of the best softball players ever. So to say that she doesn't play is such a cop out on the part of people that say that, but uh, yeah, yeah a like lot of, she's never been in a clubhouse, like that kind of mentality, which, you know, as someone who's seen her work, I can tell you that the players have so much respect for her 
and treat her like she's a fellow athlete because she is. You know, I saw um, a tweet today that reminded me of this. It's like the athletes on the field or on the court generally respect female athletes. It's like NBA players respect WNBA players. NBA players are tweeting during the WNBA playoffs. They're going to the WNBA All-Star game. Like they have respect because they recognize what athletes these women are. It's, you know, the keyboard warrior dudes that don't. And I think on some level, I saw that, you know, with, with Jessica when she's working and watching her interact with players. And I know that on days, the day before they, they broadcast on Saturdays, she goes to the park in jeans and a t-shirt when she doesn't have to worry about being on camera later and spends time with these guys. And they treat her just like any other broadcaster and any other athlete because she is. Yeah. I mean, going back to Veronica Alvarez, right. Who you profiled. um, She seems like she would be, the, I mean, she has played at the highest level there is, right? I mean, she was the the catcher for the the gold medal winning United States women's national baseball team. Like it doesn't, like it doesn't get any better than that. And so, in on the one hand, it's 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 wonderful that she was invited to spring training as a special instructor. But on the other hand, I'm like, this was the this was the the only place you needed her. Like I look across all the the minor leagues and all the managers who maybe had uh, a year or two of experience in the minors max and and it's like this is the the bar is just in such like different places and it's i don't know it's stunning to me and then and then not at the same time yeah and it's not just veronica alvarez like justine siegel also had coached for the athletics is another woman who could easily coach baseball at high levels. Uh, Tamara Holmes, who was on the U.S. Women's National Baseball Team for lots of years, like Veronica was, is probably one of the best, if not the best women, U.S. women to ever play baseball. She's someone else, you know, I don't know if she would be interested, but there are women who have played at these levels that could absolutely step into these roles if they were tapped to do so. I'm curious as to what your kind of process is personally for decompressing from reporting some of these stories and then how quickly you move on to reporting a new story, you know, just because like just for the podcast where Alex and I do maybe like one one thousandth of the immersion that you do for, for the stories that you work on. It's sort of hard for us to like wrap ourselves into this world where we like don't necessarily have answers to all of these questions and of course, none of us have uh, like the definite answer to any of these questions that we're talking about in the world that you work in, in the, in the, the nexus of sports and gender. So I'm curious just kind of like what your process is for stopping the reporting of one story, it goes up and then moving on to the next one. Well, I do not only report one story at a time. Right. I usually have, I'd say anywhere from two to four stories actively being reported at a time. And then I usually have several pitches out as well. So I'm constantly, because I'm a freelancer, having to constantly think ahead of where my paychecks are going to come from. So where my next stories are going to be and when. Um, 
this last two weeks as an example of like a nightmare of I traveled in, I don't travel a lot for work and I traveled to three different places in two weeks and then also was doing edits on two different features at the same time. Um, And that was a lot. I have two stories running this week that are like, one is, one is like 6,500 words. It's a behemoth. It (laughs) took months and months and months of research. It was, um, it's a long rates column. And it was one of those that every person I talked to sent me down another rabbit hole. And (laughs) I just had way too much research. The best and most challenging thing simultaneously. I I mean, I guess I could write a book on this topic. Um, I really don't, I have no desire to write a book on this topic, but I was like, (laughs) I need to stop talking to people. I just need to write this story and like stop calling people, you know, so that happens too. And then you're on the other hand where the other story I have running this week is a WNBA player profile. And I was with her last week and the story is running this week. So that's a much tighter timeline turn around because you know that's when I could get FaceTime with her and the season starts this weekend so it's a much quicker turnaround so it really does depend but as for how I decompress um I don't (laughs) (laughs) I should probably learn how to I try to take time with my family um we do no screen time we turn our phones off um wow respect Yeah, for Shabbat, um, from so from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, uh, my husband and I both try to turn our phones off. It doesn't always, depending on if I, you know, I have something like very timely in edits and I need to be available, I will be. But generally, we try to do that 24 hours without screens and emails and all of that. And that definitely helps. I think uh, my my favorite part about doing this podcast is that we like to say that we're a baseball podcast and then we bring like a a very experienced journalist on and then like like we become total (laughs) nerds and just ask like process questions (laughs) um and i'm like i could i could go all night with this and just pick your brain about that sort of thing um but we know it is late uh, I'm sure you have another story that you you need to get started on before uh, we let you go. Uh, I just wanted to ask. I know that like when you're when you're writing all these stories, especially ones that are so um, I think weighty at times, it's very easy to kind of feel stuck in the trenches and um, and I don't know. I think it sometimes it can be hard to often just like look up and and look around and appreciate like the small things about a baseball game or, or something like that. Um, so I'm just curious this year, whether it's in baseball uh, or the WNBA or any other sport, what are the, what are the things that are bringing you joy on a day-to-day basis? I think I've been really enjoying actually for my long reads column, what a lot of what I've been doing has been history and like looking back and getting to unearth these stories that may have been overlooked or forgotten a little bit. Um, something that is bringing me joy is from my last long age story that ran about um, Becky Smith, who is going to be the first uh, professional female highlight player in history. And she makes her debut um, 
very, very soon. And I'm like very excited about that because when I tracked her down, I actually had no idea she was still playing high lie. She's 54. <laughs> and oh, I gosh. wanted, yeah. So I wanted <laughs> More to talk power to, to her. her. <laughs> this was, this story was like such good luck. I um, got in touch with her because I wanted to ask her about playing in the mid eighties. She had tried to be the first professional female highlight player and was featured in Sports Illustrated and then sort of never, I couldn't find anything else about her. So 30 years later, I call her up to find out why she stopped playing and what it was like um, trying to break into such a male-dominated game. And we're talking, and I realize we're talking about two different things. And she says to me, so you don't know about the tryouts? And I'm like, what tryouts? Well, it turned out the week before she had tried out for this new highlight team that was being put together in Miami and had made the cut. Um, Hell yeah. And she thought, because why else? Well, of course, why else would some journalist be calling her about highlight 30 years after she stopped <laughs> playing? <laughs> um, so I track her down to talk about the, the eight, 1980s. And it turns out that, you know, she wanted to tell me how, how she was playing again. And she'd finally done the thing she set out to do 30 years ago. Um, and she's going to make her debut at the end of this month at Calder Casino in Miami. And that was really, really cool getting to tell her story. Um, so that, and some other projects I have coming up are bringing me joy too. So I don't know. I think my work can be really depressing sometimes, but other times, um, it makes me really happy. I love getting to tell the stories that I get to tell. And it does feel like the needle is shifting a little bit. I don't know if you saw that the athletic announced uh, a WNBA vertical today. They have beat writers for every team. And that feels like a really big deal. Yeah, for sure. Well, Brittany, thank you so much again for for coming on and chatting with us. Before we let you go, is there, do you want to just tell the listeners where people can find your work? Uh, if you have anything uh, of late that you would like to plug, tell us all about. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Brittany DLC. Wonderful. That's all. Perfect. That's all you really need. It's all there, right? It's all there. It's I'm succinct. a freelancer, so it's. I can't just be like, go to this website. Go to this website. Yeah, go to this.com. <laughs> well, that's why I started a newsletter because my mother and grandmother kept complaining that they never knew when my stories ran. So I made a newsletter <laughs> so that then they can know when my stories ran. <laughs> <laughs> you have to reach people where they are, you know. And for yeah. people of a certain age range, email is where they happen to be. <laughs> yeah. Well, they they have Facebook, but I don't. So. Well, there you go. Um, Meeting them halfway. Yeah. Brittany, thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. Thank you so much to Brittany. Again, she was a fantastic guest. I keep saying every time that we have a guest on this podcast that like probably they should just take the reins and host the show instead of us because they're better at talking about these things than we are. Um, but we are endlessly thankful of all of the people that have come on to talk about some of these issues and just baseball in general with us. Um, we're going to close out today with our weekly segment, Alex, three up, three down, which is I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with because I always forget to come up with my three things until like right before we're about to start recording this podcast. I think that I really enjoy it because it um, allows us the opportunity to talk about things that we 
don't really have the time or the interest to devote a full segment to, but want to get off our chest anyway. But um, I think my least favorite part about it so far in this little experiment is that I never really know what to take off my <laughs> list um, because I never really know what's still on my list. So I'm just kind of saying things that I have thought about in weeks past and just hoping that like I mentioned them at one point or another. I know. I'm going to have to have like a Carrie Matheson corkboard of like all of the things that were once on my list, but have like moved or like come back on or like, you know, it's like a whole big thing. But all right, let's get into it. Do you want to start us off this week? I think I started us off last week. Sure. So, uh, so speaking of not knowing what to take off my list, um, the three things that uh, I will take off my list this week that are my three down, uh, that would be Derek Dietrich. No, Derek. <laughs> Because he plays for the Reds, I'm sorry. I mean, I love the Reds, but and I'm watching a lot of their baseball games, but uh, they're just so peripheral to my general interests that uh, that uh, I don't know. He's got a. It, I, it's all about what have you done for me lately, right? Like, yeah, the <laughs> the, bee, the bees are so last week. What can I say? Wow, um, tough beat for Derek. <laughs> also off the list is the uh, is the the Vlad Junior quote. Um, that I, or I guess the the Vlad Senior quote about mm-hmm. Vlad Junior that I shared last week, and and not because I think the quote is uninteresting or anything like that, but because uh, Vlad Junior has now homered twice in one game. I should add, and so uh, I just have other Vlad Junior things on my mind right now. Okay, respect. Like I said, I don't really, I uh, don't really know what else is on my list, but I guess, uh, I guess Zach Greinke's off my, off my list. Um, Bye, Zach. <laughs> Because I haven't, I haven't thought about him lately. As I haven't thought about him at all. I don't really know. Yeah, I haven't either. He's really good. If you didn't know, though, he's still really good. Yep. Um, but uh, but anyway, those are my three off this week. What about you? Do you remember when Zach Greinke was on the Royals TBT? No, I don't. It's like literally two lifetimes ago. All right. Yeah. Uh, how about me? The three off my list. Funny enough that your one of yours was Vlad, and then you're talking about his home runs. One of the things that was off my list is MLB on Instagram. Uh, if you'll remember, I chose that two weeks ago. I hope that you remember it because I don't remember why that was on my list. But <laughs> <laughs> um, it's I, I think it was because it was when Vlad got called up, and yeah, it, and it was just talking about how they market their young players. Right, right, right. Well, I I was on Instagram yesterday actually. And I noticed that they posted the video of Vlad's home runs, a video of Vlad's home runs, and someone commented on it like, "Why do you post Vlad so much when you won't post Christian Yelich?" And MLB's Twitter or MLB's Instagram handle responded and was like, "Oh, we don't post videos of Christian Yelich. Weird." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's coming off my list because you can only think about social media marketing for so long unless you work in that field. Uh, next off my list is. Justin Turner, who last week, you'll remember, forgot how to hit home runs and then suddenly remembered how to hit home runs again. Well, this week he he promptly decided to get hurt and now he's day-to-day. So not hitting home runs anymore if you're not in the lineup. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The third thing that is coming off my list is Alex. I thought it would never come off my list for the entire season, but it is the concept of fair labor in baseball. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah it's not, not that about it i anymore. don't care about it i swear it's not that i don't care about fair labor in baseball anymore it's just that 
I've fallen prey like many to just thinking about the day in and day out of the game. And a lot of the top rookies who we've been expected to get called up this year, a lot of the top prospects are already up and they're producing. And I feel like it's been a little while since there was like a, a service time manipulation title belt story that we've heard about. I guarantee that this will be back on the list at some point during the season, just specific to this week. It's dropping off the list. All right. There's only nine spots. We need to make room for some stuff. And I, I can't possibly take off something as important as reddit.com backslash r backslash MLB streams. Can I? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's fair. All right. What's coming on to your list? The more important part of the conversation talking about what's coming on um (laughs) the first baseball related you could say baseball adjacent uh you could say literally right next to baseball topic is uh is damian lillard rolling up to uh hell yeah in an oakland a's jersey hell yeah personal a, a customized oakland a's jersey um it made my entire week because i'm in love with damian lillard and uh and if he's the one who ends up eliminating the Warriors on home court, if he's, if Damian Lillard is the one who closes down Oracle Arena, like there, there, there are worse ways for things to end. That's all I can say. Well, it turns out he did not do that because they lost both games at Oracle. Yes, they did lose both games at Oracle. <laughs> However, Damian Lillard, fucking fashion icon. Truly. He looks great. He looks yeah. great in A's I mean, jersey. He could be a second baseman for the A's. Get him out there. Yeah, absolutely. Does he want to pitch in our bullpen? <laughs> Does he want to eat up innings before all of the hurt A's pitchers come back from the minors? I mean, it's Damian Lillard or Fernando Rodney right now. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> you could also say it's Damian Lillard or Jerkson Profar right now. What do you want? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, that hurts. <laughs> All right, what's on the list for you this week? Funny enough, the A's pitching staff. <laughs> ah, good. Um, is there a team in the league who have a bigger disparity between hope and despair versus what they're actually trotting out every five days and what they could be trotting out every five days? I've been thinking like they have so many top prospects and so many good young arms. It's just that none of them are healthy right now. And they're kind of like all on the way back right now. And the cherry on top is that Frankie Montas pitched a, his, the best game of his career the other night. Eight and two-thirds, almost finished it out, but just couldn't quite get there. He was at like 110 pitches, so they pulled him. Um, career high in Ks, I think. Career high in innings pitched. And I love a, a young, hard-throwing, good fastball righty, even if that's to my detriment. Uh, and then obviously they have two top pitching prospects on their way back in AJ Puck and Jesus Lazardo two like huge hard throwing lefties which is pretty rare and Jarrell Cotton just made his first rehab start in the minors he looked okay I don't know it, it's just they're they're trotting out like literally dudes who should not be starting pitchers right now and in three months they could be trotting out like four really young promising starters and I don't mean to like jinx it and I don't mean to get your hopes up because I know that you're as superstitious as I am but it's like really exciting what they have coming up um, and you couple that with the young dudes who are position players like Chapman, Olsen, Oriano, these guys. I don't know. It could be a fun time for you. You could have a good rotation for the first time in like 
10 years. <laughs> wow, <laughs> roast me. I mean, when was the last time you had a rotation that you would have felt this good with this many young players coming up in it? Like Zito? Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. I mean, if you talk about like three or four or five guys all together, it's been a long time. Exactly. I've been thinking a lot about it because it seems like all of these guys are sort of on a similar time frame. And that time frame might be this year. And that might mean that you might get a full year of them next year. I don't know. It's reminiscent of the way that I felt about when all of the Mets aces were coming up. So fingers crossed for you, buddy. Well, that's what I was going to say is like, I, on the one hand, you get really excited about the young pitchers. And then you also remember that they're pitchers and humans are not meant to be pitchers. And uh, I mean, you don't even have to, I mean, you could look at the Mets as a cautionary tale of how quickly things can go wrong with pitchers. But, uh, but like in theory, it's already happened with the A's, right? You're seeing it right now. Um, and you know, if you have Sean Manaya who's coming back this year, possibly after shoulder surgery, which is never a good thing. Um, so yeah, like you were saying, there's a lot of promise, but there's so much risk there too. And so my nails have been, uh, fully bitten down at this <laughs> point. That doesn't have anything to do with the AIDS. Don't lie to yourself. <laughs> oh, wow. Roast. Just keep, keep dunking on me. I will. That's what I'm here for. Also, I want to say you could look at the Mets as a cautionary tale. You could also look at the Mets as like they had a championship window and like what fan base wouldn't kill for one even short championship window. Most teams don't have championship windows ever, you know? Yeah, of course. No, I don't think that that was a, that wasn't a a dig at the Mets. I was saying that it's, you can have so much talent and yet it's so hard for it to all coalesce at the same time because Noah Syndergaard gets hurt or whatever, or Steven Matz gets hurt or anything. Like, like you can have all the talent in the world, but, but yeah, honestly, but like having it all actually click at the same time is so hard and even, even as tantalizing as it is. Yeah. All right, I'm going to knock on wood like 10 times in a row just for this whole conversation. Ready? There we go. All right. The the jinx is undone. What's next for you? (laughs) Um, What's next for me is um, Alex Rodriguez going number two. Um, (laughs) And I'm I'm not sure if you saw this. I I did. uh, You did see this. Okay. So, uh, So, folks, Alex Rodriguez... He uses his phone while pooping just like the rest of us. That's all I'm going to say. Um, there was a, a photo circulated around Twitter the other day that was snapped from a building adjacent to <laughs> <laughs> Alex Rodriguez's. Um, he uh, f- And I think my first question is, why does he have like a floor-to-ceiling window in his bathroom with no blinds? <laughs> that anyone can look into. (laughs) Um, But then uh, my second question, I guess, is that uh, his lawyers are, are trying very hard to sue the person who took this photo. And I'm curious what they're trying to hide. Is it, uh, is it the monogrammed towels hanging in the background? Do they not want people to know that he has monogrammed towels with an A on them? Is it, is it the fact that he's just like, wheeling and dealing while he's on the toilet like they want to they want to pretend that a-rod has more grace than that i i don't know man i'm reading the dead spin write-up of this right now and there there's a line um as reported in a triple bylined new york post article the ex-yankee has rounded up his lawyers so they can figure out who took the photo and take action (laughs) (laughs) i just find it 
one hilarious and two sickening the amount of wealth that someone could have where they would want to take uh to have litigation over whether a photo of you pooping should be on the internet you know yeah yeah this is i'm just trying to afford groceries out here (laughs) (laughs) um in in said deadspin story they don't actually post the photo, perhaps to avoid any sort of legal confrontation themselves. I don't know why, but um, instead they have an artist's <laughs> rendition of the photo. And I just want to tip my hat to Jim Cook uh, with the Gizmodo Media Group or whatever they're going by now, um, who took the time to draw the photo of A-Rod shitting while using his phone. This is It's an incredibly inspired drawing, and I urge you, the listener, to seek it out if you haven't already. I don't think that I could ever be the person that took this photo and tweeted it out, but I commend the person that did because like the Joker in the dark night, you just want to watch the world burn. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Anyway, not something I thought I'd be thinking out, thinking about on a Saturday afternoon in May, but here we are. Yeah, me either. Okay. Next up for me, Yasiel Puig's new hairstyle. I brought this up just yes. so I could let you, I I brought this up just so I could let you cook on this because when I sent this tweet from the Reds to you you reacted very strongly and I think your words were in all caps my king and then like 10 hard eyes emojis after that um Yeah. And honestly, what better way to commend tipping pitches as king than a mohawk dyed yellow? It's a little bit like a crown if we're being honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's it is something else. You know, it kind of reminds me of a, of a Javi Baez look, if we're being honest. That's who, um, I mean, I don't think Javi went as white and he maybe it was more closer to, to frosted tips than anything else. I love this a is frosted just like, tip. This is just full on down to the root. Like it's that kind of off-white, almost eggshell colored yeah. hairstyle. Yeah. But it's, it's, it is really nice. I think the best dyed look that we have going on right now in baseball is fernando tatis jr he looks outstanding just he has that like frosted tip look going on and it like coincides with his beard too he's just he's killing it but puig is striving to be puig as he always is and i respect it i also wrote down on my list here uh not just the hair but his subsequent same day home run and then bat flip off Madison Bumgarner and then Madison <laughs> Bumgarner being like, it only took him seven years how to hit off me. My name is Madison Bumgarner. I dated someone with the same name as me and him just being totally not mad. Definitely not mad, Alex. He's not mad at all. He's not mad what, that we get a home run off of him. What an obnoxious way to respond to that sort of thing. Like Jesus Christ, Madison Bumgarner does not draw with all apologies to my dear friend, Austin Zimmerman, who's a Giants fan and you who's an adopted Giants fan. Madison Bumgarner does not draw enough ire from the media (laughs) for his shit that he pulls. He really doesn't. We just let him get away with it. I wonder why that is. Uh, All right, let's move on. All right. My last one. I am glad that you brought up Yasiel Puig because I'm going to keep the thing going. Now, if, you, uh, if you're a listener of Tipping Pitches, and I hope that you are if you're listening to this podcast, you may, you may take the time to glance down at your phone and, uh, and look at our logo. It, and it happens to be Yasiel Puig licking his bat. Now, for the last year or so, this has been a, uh, a thing that Yasiel Puig does, and no one has really ever known why until just a couple of days ago, he explained it 
to uh, to us, the viewer. He explained why he licks his bat, and I guess more precisely, what he tastes when he licks the bat. <laughs> Yasu Puig says that when he licks his bat, he um, sometimes he's thinking about like tasting ice cream, like vanilla ice cream oh. or, or strawberry ice cream. He says only sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't taste very good, and that's when he might make like kind of a, a gross face. Um, but he made sure to note that the whole point of licking the bat is because he believes that it's just kind of, it gives him some good luck, man. He knows that good things are coming when he licks the bat. And what I'm saying is that it's quite possible that I'm going to spend the next good chunk of free time that I have trying to devise Yasiel Puig's splits when he licks his bat prior to the the pitch. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, there needs to be a column for that on Baseball Reference. Get on that, Baseball Reference. Uh, we're not worthy of Puig. We really aren't. No. Every day we become less and less worthy of him as a baseball watching community. <laughs> we get we stray further and further from the light of our God. <laughs> so true. All right, round us out with your last one, Bobby. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. My last one is. And this is going to be one of those moments where I weirdly sound proud of the city in which I come from, and that is Philadelphia. All right. I don't know if you saw this, but last week, the man, Bruce Willis, threw out the first pitch (laughs) at a Philadelphia Phillies baseball game. Yes. And I want to play the audio real quick for you guys. He did what you might say, what you might call a short-armed it, (laughs) and he was standing not even on the mound. Not even on the dirt of the mound. He was standing in the infield grass in front of the mound. And he has a nice little lefty wind-up, you know? It's kind of old-timey in nature. And he just it went straight into the dirt. I mean, it still went towards the general direction of the catcher. But it was a real, he, he short-hopped it, man. Um, and Philly, does, Philly did what Philly does best. As the ball bounced, immediately they booed the ever-living shit out of him. <laughs> Um, and I guess, I guess Willis was throwing out the first pitch because he's from New Jersey, which is a a thing, I guess you do throw out the Phillies first pitch when you're from New Jersey because New Jersey doesn't have a baseball team. So they either adopt the New York teams if you're from Northern New Jersey or the Philly team, if the Philly teams, if you're from South New Jersey, um, and listen, you can be in Die Hard, you can be in Pulp Fiction, you can be an action movie legend, but if you can't hit the catcher on a straight line, you're going to get booed in life. And frankly, I think that's comforting. No one is above getting booed for not being able to throw out a good first pitch. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think he got what he deserved. I mean, I, if you throw out the first pitch that's harsh, in, man. In, in Philadelphia, like, what do you expect, man? I mean, most baseball fan bases may not be too forgiving, but Phillies fans, I'm surprised they even let him stand in front of the mound. I mean, that's... That's weak, in my opinion. Just a, I totally agree. Anyone gets on the mound. I mean, even if you think you're going to make a fool of yourself, like at least you can't handicap yourself and still make yourself look dumb. Like stand on the mound, bounce it. All right, it happens. But my dude was like halfway between the mound and home plate. <laughs> you can't not stand on the mound if you're in Die Hard. Yeah, that's what you're in Die Hard. Yeah, you're in Die Hard. 
I'm just going to keep saying it until it resonates with the people who are he listening was, to the podcast. He was in Die Hard. I don't know if you saw the the video. He took some BP with the team but before, yeah. the, before the game, too. Oh, my God. His swing is so bad. Like, dude, load <laughs> your hands a little bit more. He's just starting, like, like back, like, at his chest and just going from there. I bet when this podcast started with Jeopardy Facts, you didn't expect that it would end up with technically critiquing Bruce Willis's home run swing. <laughs> it's not a home run swing. This is a dribbler to second base swing. Load your hands more, bro. <laughs> <laughs> the future of this podcast is us just saying load your hands more about lefty power swings in the MLB. Yeah. This is much. good radio. <laughs> Anyway, Bruce Willis, I hope you're doing okay. I hope the Philadelphia fans didn't bruise your ego too much. He's got a lot of money. He'll be fine. Fair. Alright, Alex. This was a vast and strange episode um, but before we get out of here I want to say thank you one more time to Brittany De La Creta all of her information and where you can find her uh, where you can follow her on Twitter where you can read her brilliant writing that is in the description so check that out anything else that you want to add before we get out of here? Uh, just if you have other baseball themed Jeopardy questions that you'd like to send us please do uh, we had a lot of fun answering them Uh, we'd like to test our baseball knowledge as much as we can we'd like you the listener to test our baseball knowledge as much as we can keep us in check yes yeah keep us on the toes man send us something about like a now defunct minor league team from the 40s in Iowa and see if we know about them we probably won't but we'll make ourselves look stupid which is frankly our brand at this point is this heaven no it's tipping pitches alright let's get out of here (laughs) thanks everyone Bye.